Well, we're continuing our series through uh, questions, and this is a series where where you ask the questions, I just do the best job I know how to do to answer them biblically and clearly. And uh, we're gonna pick up right where we left off last week with this question. How do I show the love of God without turning people off by sounding judgmental or intolerant? Many of the questions that were submitted over the last month or so dealt with this right here. This is a summarization question of many questions. And we spent some time diagnosing this a little bit last week and about how we face a significant challenge Um, sharing our faith today um, because we just live under a different set of values than many people in our world today. And that's not some big surprise. It's just the reality. Christians today uh, live under what we might call just biblical values. We ask questions like, what does God think about this? What does the Bible say about this? We should pray about this. These are the kinds of things that guide um, how we navigate through life. We live by values that are related to the reality that we do believe there is a God who sent his son to die on the cross to be the atoning sacrifice for our sins. He rose from the dead. He ascended into heaven, gave us the Holy Spirit. He's coming back again one day and we should be ready for it. That's how we live. That's the expectation that we have. Now, we live in a world, of no surprise, where the majority of people don't feel the same way we do. They don't see it like we do. They value other things. And we live in a secular society that highly values tolerance. Tolerance isn't about what God thinks. It's not about asking those questions. What does the Bible say? How does God feel about this? We should pray about it. It's not at all. It's, it's more about what I think is right, what I feel is correct. And I don't mean to sound arrogant when I'm describing it, but that's just what a secular society highly values. It's like, hey, you can do whatever you wanna do, but don't infringe upon what I wanna do. I'm gonna live my life. Don't tell me that you've got the answers. Um, I'm, I'm gonna live what feels right. I'll define things how I wanna define them. It really is kind of a way of, of, of living life and holding true to values that rely more on self than anything else. And don't tell me as a Christian that you own exclusivity on truth. That's not gonna work for me. And you know, there is a, a, it's, it's, it's a way of looking at that just doesn't include God in our thinking. And you know, the Bible addresses this in many places, maybe very clearly in Psalm chapter 10. That's a whole psalm that's about uh, the way that people live who don't want anything to do with God. And in the fourth chapter of, of uh, fourth verse of that chapter, verse t- uh, chapter 10, it says this, in his pride, the wicked man does not seek him. In all his thoughts, there is no room for God. No room for God. That perhaps is maybe the best description of the tension between what we value as Christians and then what a secular society values. They just don't have any room for God in the conversation. And as we looked at last week, the granddaddy verse of them all that creates a lot of tension between these two points of view is John 14, six, when Jesus said what? I am the way, I am the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. And a secular, tolerant society can respond to that verse with how can you say that Jesus is the only way. How can you be so confident? That's not right, that's not how I feel. And if you've ever spent time trying to share your faith with somebody, no doubt that you have encountered some of this resistance. That is the the tension we live in. Now, I will say this, not everyone feels that way. Not everybody would be so strong about their feelings. But from my point of view, there is a growing hostility in our land towards biblical values and towards people who hold them dear. 
Now that's my observation. Maybe you felt it too. Christians oftentimes get accused of being judgmental and intolerant. We are blamed for a whole lot of things. Christians get blamed for holding the country back. We get blamed for influencing politics negatively. Christians are often accused of being out of touch with today's world, out of touch with science, out of touch with modern thinking. We get blamed for holding true to values that are considered archaic by many people today, and they they accuse us of holding to them with a holier-than-thou attitude with exclusive claims to the truth. The hostility at times can make me angry, and it probably makes you angry too. There are times it can make us feel discouraged, this growing hostility. There are some times that we might often feel, man, we are losing our family. We are losing our country. We are losing our way of life. It's the tension between what we value and what many in our world value differently. So there's another question that kind of comes out of our question last week, and it's this. How should we as Christians relate to people who don't, who don't uh, believe the same way we do? Well, how should we go about doing that? How do we show the love of God without giving up ground, of course, but how do we re- even relate to people? That's a tremendous question. Now, I am a firm believer in the word of God. I hope you know that. And if you don't know that, I'm gonna tell you right now, I am a firm believer in the word of God. I believe that there are very few questions that come up ever in our lives that the Bible doesn't speak truth into, that doesn't speak guidance towards. And this question right here about how do we relate to people who just see the world differently than we do. We don't wanna be judgmental or intolerant. We wanna be seen that way. How do we bust down these walls of hostility? All of those kind of things, I believe the Bible answers that question. In fact, gives us quite a bit of guidance today of how to navigate through it. So if you would, if you got your Bibles, would you open to the book of Colossians chapter four? We're gonna be spending our time with this, uh, with this chapter of the Bible today. And I'm gonna ask that you just keep it on your laps uh, because there's gonna be multiple times I'm gonna reference back to it. it. The verses may not pop up on the screen when I do that, but you're gonna be able to see it because it's right there on your lap. Colossians chapter four, it's in the New Testament. And while you're finding that, um, let me just tell you that this letter of the Bible was written by the Apostle Paul. And it's called Colossians because it was written to the Christians who were living in the city of Colossae. So he's giving them instructions. And if you read the whole letter, you're gonna find out real quickly that this is a letter about how Christ is Lord over all and salvation is found in him. Nothing else, it's found in him. And as Paul gets to the end of his letter to these Christians in Colossae, he turns his attention to talk about prayer and evangelism. And what he shares at the end of his letter, it's almost as if it feels like that maybe the Christians there in Colossae were asking the same kinds of questions that we are asking here as a church family because he seems to address the very same thing. How in the world do I relate to people who just don't believe like me, who maybe are hostile towards what I believe? How do I do that? He, he gives us some very clear guidance of how to navigate that. You got it open there? Look at verse two of chapter four, and let's just read a few verses together. Paul says, devote yourselves to prayer, be watchful and thankful, and pray for us too that God may open the door for our message, so that we may proclaim the mystery of Christ for which I am in chains. Pray that I may proclaim it clearly, as I should, 
Be wise in the way you act towards outsiders. Make the most of every opportunity. Let your conversation always be full of grace, seasoned with salt, so that you may know how to answer everyone. I read that and I go, I think that church is asking the same questions we are asking and I think Paul addresses this. He gives us some tremendous guidance of how to go about answering this question. So his counsel really has two parts to it. There's the first part, which is all about prayer. Did you pick up on that part? Devote yourselves to prayer, he says. Pray for us. Pray that the message is proclaimed clearly. That's the first part. The second part is all about evangelism. What does he say? Be wise in how you act towards outsiders. Let your conversation always be full of grace. I I can tell you this, friends, right now. If we have any hope of answering this question and living it out and having success, then we better start understanding that prayer and evangelism go together, okay? They go together like peas and carrots, like the old saying says. There's an evangelist from Great Britain. His name's Nick Pollard. He says this. He said, prayer... Is, is talking to God about people. And evangelism, evangelism is talking to people about God. We can't do one without the other. I agree with that 100%. I, I feel like that's right in line with the messaging that Paul is trying to communicate here in the fourth chapter of Colossians, that prayer and evangelism should be seen as going together. So let's begin with what he said about prayer just real quickly. He highlights three prayers, if you saw that in the text. And I believe these three prayers give us some some guidance today in answering this question. He says this, number one, if you're taking notes, he says this, pray for us. Pray that God may open the doors for our message. What is Paul praying for? What is he asking the church to be praying for? He's asking the church to be praying for opportunities. That's what he's asking them to pray for. He wants God to open doors. Open doors for what? Open doors that he might share the good news. It's, it's, it would be like asking God to bring somebody into your life specifically for the purpose of influencing them with the gospel. It's asking God to orchestrate a meeting with someone and to go before us and prepare the way. And I have a question for you, church. Do you ever pray prayers like that? Have you ever prayed a prayer like that before? It's like praying for that coworker, asking God, hey, God, when I go to work tomorrow, I would like to ask you to create an opportunity for this coworker of mine to have a conversation that honors you and, and maybe helps him take one step closer to, to believing in you, and I'm praying specifically for that. Have you, have you prayed a prayer like that before? Do you pray ever that God would give you an opportunity maybe even just to meet somebody randomly? Have, have you ever prayed a prayer that's like, God, uh, I'm taking the dog down to the bark park tomorrow after work and uh, there's gonna be a lot of dog lovers down there and I pray, Lord, that you just orchestrate and anoint a conversation with somebody I randomly meet down there and that we talk about dogs and that leads into some kind of conversation about faith. Lord, would you help me make that connection? Have you ever prayed a prayer like that before? Would you be afraid to pray a prayer like that? And you might say, scared to say a prayer like that. Why would I be scared? Because God might actually answer it. 
And you might be in a position where you actually have to have a conversation. Let's be honest. Talking to people about Jesus can be a very intimidating thing to just put yourself out there like that, especially a friend or coworker, and the fear of not knowing exactly what to say and what if I mess this up and all that stuff. Maybe that's why Paul asked for the second prayer. Number two, to be able to proclaim the mystery of Christ. And we may be a little intimidated. We might be not have all the boldness that we need, but, but if we're praying for these opportunities, and let's say you pray for that coworker, and let's say tomorrow when you go to work, God actually gives you that, that opportunity. You're in the break room together just one-on-one, and this person asks a very spiritual question. Bam, the opportunity arises. I think this next prayer is, Lord, help me have boldness to go ahead and proclaim, because in those moments, we are confronted with either to step up or back out. And it's easy to back out. And we've all backed out. I am your pastor and I have backed out of grand opportunities before to share the gospel. I don't know, um, I don't know if you've ever had this experience, but I have. They'll be talking with somebody and I, I just say, it feels like the Holy Spirit is nudging me to engage. The Holy Spirit is like, ask that question. The opportunity's there, go ahead. And, and every time that I do, it's, it's, it's amazing what God does with it. But when I don't, usually I'm like, I don't think that was God, that was the pizza I ate. I don't, I don't think that was God, I don't think I'm hearing you correctly. You know, when I, when I don't follow that prompting, I always feel like, man, I should've. What if I'd have just said this? Have you ever had that experience? Oh, I wish I'd have just thought of that. And I think this is where this prayer comes in. Pray that I don't miss this opportunity. That I go ahead and proclaim it clearly. And that leads to the third prayer. Proclaim it clearly. We should be praying about that. So in other words, I think Paul is saying, pray that we don't mess it up. That's maybe my paraphrase. That's a prayer I pray often. Oh, Lord, please don't let me mess this up. Lord, please let this come out clearly. And I don't know if you pray that way. Do you see how all these three prayers kind of go together in succession? He's saying we must pray that God gives us the opportunities to talk to people about Jesus and that we will actually take those opportunities and that when we do, we will proclaim the gospel clearly. So when it comes to how do you show the love of God without coming across judgmental or intolerant? How do we talk to somebody who just completely doesn't see the world like we do? How do we do that? I guess my follow-up question is, how often do we pray about that? So like if you, I know many of you have this, you have a, a family member who has abandoned their walk with Jesus maybe engaged in lifestyles that are completely contrary to the truthfulness of God's word. Maybe you got a friend, a coworker, just absolutely does not care about what we believe. When was the last time you were down on your knees before the Lord asking for the Lord to open these doors of opportunity to you, to to help you build some bridges so that when the opportunity is right, you'll be there and you can share the good news and the heart will be receptive. When was the last time any of us were on our face before God asking for this? And you say, oh, pastor, I prayed about that many times. I prayed and prayed and prayed, and, and, and they're just not interested. They think I'm a Bible-thumping wacko, and they don't want to listen. They think I'm judgmental, and I prayed and prayed and prayed. And you know what my counsel to you would be? Don't quit. Because the Word of God says this in 1 Thessalonians 5. It says, be joyful always, pray continually, and give thanks in all circumstances, for this is God's will for you, 
Christ Jesus. It's God's will for us to pray continually, to come at these things with some sense of, all right, God, you got this. I'm not gonna get down about this. I'm gonna lay this before you every day. I'm gonna pray continually. And if you're in that situation, I have prayed and prayed. They don't wanna listen. I can't build a bridge. Don't quit praying about it. How do we show the love of God? It starts on our knees. And that leads us to the next part of Paul's counsel because the next part moves from prayer on into evangelism. And it's an incredible instruction if we will just take it to heart and listen and try to apply it. So we pray and pray and pray, ask God to open up opportunities for us and be ready to proclaim the gospel clearly. Then what? Number four, he says this, be wise in the way that you act towards outsiders. Be wise in the way that you act towards outsiders. Let's define a term, make sure we're all on the same page. What does Paul mean by outsiders? What did he mean by it back then? Well, specifically, it's not a trick question. It's those people who are outside of the family of God. They have not come in to God's family yet. So we might simply say they're an unbeliever currently or they are um, a non-Christian. They have not surrender themselves to the lordship of Christ by believing in his death, burial, and resurrection and striving to live every day for the Lord. That's what he means by outsider. These are the people that we work with every day. Some of them are in our family. We interact with them every day. We drive by them every day. Every, every environment pretty much that we are, we are in has outsiders. Even when we gather in Christian circles. Be very wise, he says, in the way you interact with the lost. And he doesn't say it, but it's implied because the way we behave and the things that we say can absolutely influence doors opening or doors slamming shut in your face. Be wise in the way you act towards outsiders. And if we are to take the words of Paul to heart, what does that look like on a practical level? Let's take it to heart. We should. What does that look like? Well, I think it would mean this, that you and I, as believers, we'd have to intentionally find a way to love and respect those whom we completely disagree with. Can you do it? If we're gonna take Paul's words to heart, be wise, use wisdom. One of the best questions we could ever ask ourselves is, is this a wise thing to do? To exercise wisdom in the way we act towards outsiders. You know, it's really easy to preach that. It's not as easy to live that, is it? It's not easy to live it in a divided culture, which is very divided. I've never seen a nation so divided as us today. It's, it's hard to live that out in a divided church culture. I've never seen a day when the church in America was more divided on the most simple of issues than I have seen right now. Be wise in the way you act towards outsiders. I think it has greater implications today than at any time in my life. You know, Jesus was a pro at this. You know that Jesus was a master at this? I could give you countless examples. I could fill up the rest of your day with examples. I'll give you two quick ones. You go to John chapter four. Jesus has this encounter with this Samaritan woman and they're, they're there at a well and they start to have a conversation. This is a woman who was living a lifestyle that Jesus would have been completely opposed to. 
I mean, everything in the Bible says the way this woman is choosing to live her life, no, 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 that's not what we would say is the right way to go about doing it. Jesus engaged her in conversation. He listened to her even when doing so would have been comp- considered completely countercultural. You know, there's society rules that are in place and there is no reason, no circumstances that, that would have allowed Jesus to just have a conversation with this lady. One, because she was a woman. Two, because she was a Samaritan woman and she is even shocked that Jesus has even given her the time or day. But Jesus, what's very obvious when you read it is that he genuinely cared about her as a person. He was interested in what she was going through. He desired to understand the circumstances that brought about her lifestyle decisions and he cared about her soul and that is what resonated with her. It was, it was some compassion. Now in that whole encounter, not once did Jesus ever give up any of his convictions. Not once did he ever say, You know, I get that. You know, maybe I should rethink what the Bible says about that. Not once did Jesus ever give an inch of what he was convicted about scripturally. But he just deeply cared about her. He cared about her soul. And it changed her life. I think about another time when Jesus was calling his disciples and one of his disciples is named Matthew. He was a tax collector. If you know anything about tax collectors, they were like the scum of the earth. Nobody looked at their child back in Bible days and said, hey, little Johnny, what do you wanna be when you grow up? I'm gonna be a tax collector like Zacchaeus. Oh, that's wonderful. No, they never had that impression. Tax collecting, they had their own category for tax collectors. They were sinners and then there were tax collectors. I'd rather be a sinner than a tax collector. I mean, so that Jesus would call Matthew a tax collector, also the one who wrote the gospel of Matthew, by the way, that Jesus would call him out of that lifestyle to follow him, that's a miracle all in itself. But then that, we know what Matthew did? He was so excited about it, he throws a party for Jesus. He's like, you're gonna come to my house and I'm gonna invite all my tax collector buddies and we're gonna have a party. So Matthew throws this, this, this banquet and, and of course, you know, what do people do at a banquet? They, they tell jokes, they laugh, they, they, they have a meal together, they, they're in a relaxed atmosphere, they're having a good time together. And Jesus is right in the middle of this party with all of these tax collectors. And the Pharisees of the day, they're the religious leaders, they look at that from the outside and they're like, what in the world is Jesus doing hanging out with the scum of the earth? Jesus, knowing that they're saying these things, has what I think one of the most epic comebacks you're gonna read in the Bible, but really what it does is shows his heart. What did Jesus say, do you remember? It is not the healthy that need a doctor, it's the sick. And he says, I've not come to call the righteous, but sinners. Do you know how much compassion you gotta have inside of you to have that point of view? I mean, these are guys that are the worst of the worst, cheating their own people, stealing from them. Do do you know how much compassion you gotta have for people like that to say something like that? 
There's lots of examples that we could point to, but Jesus was a pro at doing the very thing that Paul had to learn and is now encouraging the church to do. Is it, is it any wonder why Jesus would say when asked, what is the greatest commandment in all the Bible that Jesus said? I can boil it down to you this way. Love the Lord your God with all your heart and all your soul and all your mind. That's the first, and the second's like it. Love your neighbor as yourself. All of the stuff in the Bible comes down to those two things. Love God, love people. And this right there, that command can be a great struggle for many Christians today, myself included. It's easy as a Christian today, especially in this divided culture that we live in, to become consumed with just how wrong people are and forget how deeply loved they still are by God. That's an easy thing to do. You know, there's an old saying, many of you know it well, hate the sin, but love the sinner. Familiar with that? If we're not wise in how we act towards outsiders, then what is easy to do is to develop a, a temperament about ourselves, a tone, uh, a, a posture that communicates the exact opposite, hate the sin and hate the sinner. And this is what is felt many times by people who accuse us of being judgmental or intolerant. They're feeling, they're sensing something from us. Tim Harlow, who's a pastor in uh, Chicago, in his book, Life on Mission, shares this insight that I agree with 100%. He says this, if we, the church, become consumed with how wrong the world is, then before long, we don't even see people as lost anymore because we are so irritated by just how wrong that they are. Friends, we as a church, you know what we need to do? We need to recover this phrase. We need to recover it. We need to genuinely live it out where we hate the sin, but we love the sinner. And if we don't recover this and live it out wholeheartedly, then we are never gonna break down the walls of hostility and show the world that there is a God who genuinely loves them that gave his son to die on the cross for them out of love. We've gotta recapture this. The Apostle Paul had to learn it, and he says so, so much so in 1 Corinthians chapter 13. And you know what he says? He says, if I speak in tongues of men or of angels, but I do not have love, I am only a resounding gong or a clanging cymbal. See, it's one thing to know the truth, and it's one thing to be fully convinced that Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life. It's one thing to be fully convinced and be able to define what is and what isn't sin, but unless you follow Jesus in the kind of love and compassion he had for others, then even our lives, even with the best intentions, could be like what Paul is saying. It's just gonna be like a clanging symbol. It's gonna ring hollow, and it's gonna be annoying to the people that we desire to lead to Christ. Sean McDowell is, uh, is maybe a, an author that you should become acquainted with. He is the son of the famous uh, um, author Josh McDowell. And maybe you've read some of his books. Josh McDowell wrote a book called More Than a Carpenter, one of his best books. He wrote a series of books called Evidence That Demands a Verdict. He's, a, he's a, 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 an expert in the field of apologetics. So apologetics, all that is, is a fancy word for defending your faith. It's the study of or the science of defending your faith. Well, his son, Sean, 
Kind of following in his father's footsteps, and he's written extensively as well. And he writes about in his book called God Quest a number of years ago about a time that he was invited to be the guest at a gathering um, from a group called the Free Thought Alliance of Orange County, which he says, I have no clue what that is, but he says this is a group of skeptics who meet regularly to, dis- to discuss and discount the existence of God. Did you know that a group like that existed? A gathering of skeptics who their only purpose for gathering is to come up with ways to discredit the, the existence of God. I guess it makes sense. I mean, we get together and study the Bible and all the ways that it's true. I guess there's people who get together and study ways to discount it, but this is what he's invited to. And so he writes in his book that, that he was obviously invited because he was you know, the other side of the coin to their discussion. They wanted to have a debate, and obviously he was the guy that they invited to come and have this debate. And so Sean, in his book, says, I love to debate. I love to, to engage with people, especially when it comes to, um, uh, you know, does God exist? And he goes, I love that debate because Christians have the best argument because we've got the greatest proof that he does actually exist. And he goes, I, basically, he kind of says the best. I love nailing people to the wall over this. But, you know, he said as he's arriving at this gathering of these skeptics, he said something just came over me that maybe that's not the right approach today. Obviously, they knew what he was about, and they invited him there for a reason. But instead of trying to nail them to the wall, which he enjoys doing, he just had this sense that maybe today, maybe I'm just supposed to listen. Maybe today, I should try to build some common ground. Maybe today, I should try to understand how they perceive people like me. And that's what he intended to do. And he writes about this whole evening in his book. I won't share the whole thing, but he did ask him this question. He said, what bad impression do Christians leave? In your mind, what bad impressions do Christians have? And I'll just share with you what he said. Number one, hypocrisy. They said, Christians often focus on particular sins, such as homosexuality, why they are committing other egregious sins in their own life. And he said, what else? They said, Christians don't take their religion seriously. Why don't they read, study, and follow the Bible if they really believe it is the word from the Almighty? Sean goes, what else? And they said, well, Christians notice the faults in others, but not themselves. He says, what else? Christians need to stop treating people who don't believe like them as if they are wearing a scarlet letter. There was a lot to this discussion. You can get the book and read it if you want on your own. There was a lot of dialogue that evening, but at the end of the day, Sean says, what I try to do is just get to know them, listen, understand what they, were, what they were saying, where they were coming from, how they perceived people like me. He said, as the opportunities avail themselves, and they asked, I tried to give the Christian position in a loving way as much as I could. But he said, I made this observation at the end of the day. He said, I think back on that night, as soon as those people in the group realized that I was not there to attack them and I truly wanted to understand what they believed, he said, all of their guards dropped. That was his observation. And he says this, once again, I learned that it doesn't matter what I know or how convincingly I argue for my position. If I don't show love and respect to those who disagree with me, they are never going to hear the truth of what I say. And I do believe that there's a part of that 
that is reflective of what Paul is challenging Christians to do today. Be very wise in how you act towards people who don't believe like you. There's ways to open doors of opportunity and there's ways to get it shut in our face. We have to exercise some wisdom, which, which leads to the fifth thing. Paul writes, you gotta make the most of every opportunity. I never thought about it like this before until somebody pointed it out to me. But when Paul says, make the most of every opportunity, he's not instructing the church to go out and make every opportunity. I'd never thought about it like that before. And I'm still wrestling down this idea just to be completely transparent with you. But he doesn't say go and make your own opportunities. He says make the most of the opportunities. And it makes sense in context that if we are praying to God, like Paul encourages the church today, pray for us, pray that God opens doors, pray that God creates opportunities. If God is the one that's responsible for opening those doors of opportunity, doesn't that take a little bit of pressure off on us instead of to make every opportunity? We just gotta be ready for when those opportunities come. We gotta be ready for the answer. We gotta be ready to step in when God creates. And I tell you, if God creates the opportunity, don't you think he's gonna bless our bold proclamation of Christ? I do believe so. So Paul encourages to, 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 to make the most of these opportunities. And how do we make the most of these kinds of opportunities when they come? Well, he says, be full of grace. Do you see that in the text? Be full of grace. What does he mean by full of grace? Well, I can tell you what he doesn't mean. He doesn't mean change your mind and lose your convictions. I fear that's what's happening among the church today. There are these hard, complex issues that run absolutely counterculture and counter against the Bible. And instead of boldly proclaiming and taking our stand and holding the line as Christians, what we've done is, because we think we're being friendly and nice and full of grace, you know what? Maybe I should change my mind about that. You know what? Maybe you've got some points. You know what? Maybe... Maybe we shouldn't see that as a sin. Maybe, maybe we should just jettison the Bible altogether. Maybe being full of grace does not mean you give up one inch of biblical conviction. Being full of grace doesn't mean that you step back from the line and fail to hold it and, and let the world move closer and closer. It doesn't mean that at all. Our task as Christians very clearly explained in scripture, is to be ambassadors for Christ involved in the ministry of reconciliation. That's the words of the Bible. In other words, as an ambassador, we are speaking on Christ's behalf. We are showing people with our very lives what it means to be reconciled to God. Reconciled just means to come back into a right relationship with God. Sin has broken the relationship. We help people come back into a right relationship through Jesus Christ. So we are Christ ambassadors with the mission of reconciliation in front of us. We are to love our neighbors as ourselves. That's right from Jesus with all the compassion that Jesus modeled for us in the scriptures. So we literally have a gospel of grace, love, and reconciliation. So as it relates to evangelism, I can tell you evangelism isn't just about saying the right things. It's about being a certain kind of person 
and living in a certain kind of way that expresses the heart of the gospel, that reflects the image of Christ, that speaks for Christ and showing love and grace and that is the center of our hearts and in our communications with others. So if our motivation as Christians is just to win arguments and to nail people to the wall for being wrong, that is not full of grace. But if our motivation is to be like Jesus and to live genuinely and to display the kind of love that Jesus had, the the kind of love that kept him on that cross when evil men were nailing him to it, when he could have easily called down legions of angels to take him down, that kind of love. That's the kind of people we're called to be, full of grace. But what's the last thing he said? Also, seasoned with salt. Do you see it in the text? Full of grace, seasoned with salt. I like how one evangelist speaks of this. He says, salt added to the meal brings out flavor. I think that's what Christians do. We bring flavor. We bring perspective. We bring in a lot of things. We, we make this better. While salt put on a wound... It stings, but it acts as an antiseptic. Our conversations need to be the same. We must be gracious, but we must also demonstrate true love that warns people of personal danger. Full of grace, seasoned with salt, love, compassion, understanding for sure, but when the time is right, when the opportunity is there, when God creates the moment, absolutely it's time to pour on some salt because we're not doing anybody good if we don't help them cross the line to salvation, full of grace, seasoned with salt. This is not an exact science by any means because there's no two people the same. There's no two circumstances that are exactly the same. Um, There's nobody has an identical situation as someone else. What Paul is giving us is some guidance in how to show the love of God without but without sounding judgmental or intolerant, God, Paul is showing us how we as Christians can relate to people who don't believe the same way we do, might even be a little hostile towards what we believe. And the, the instruction, the guidance is clear, friends. And I just wanna make it clear for you. Paul says pray, pray specifically. Pray for open doors. Pray for the proclamation of the gospel and pray that it goes out clearly. Pray for opportunities. Pray for doors to open. That's what we as a church are challenged to pray. So let's get down on our face before God and start making these prayers. Let's start praying to God. And then make the most out of every opportunity when God opens the door. Be very wise in this. Love, respect, compassion, understanding. They're all key quality characteristics of Jesus. And when we interact with people living exactly the way the Bible says not to live, then our interactions need to be full of grace, seasoned with salt. And like what Sean McDowell says, they're never gonna hear the truth of what I have to say if I don't show love and respect to those who disagree with me. So friends, I'm gonna stop right there and I'm just gonna let the words of Paul hang on you. I mean, this, these are words of guidance. And I, I'd imagine even as we read them and as we are processing them, there's people, there's situations that we're living through right now, there's neighbors that we have, there's children that we have, there's friends, there's coworkers, there's, there's people that we interact with. I, I, I know that as we study this, names, examples, are coming into your mind. 
Ask the Lord to help you process this. These are words of guidance. But what comes down to my conclusion is how in the world are we ever going to show the love of God if we're not loving ourselves? I'm not gonna give them an inch of conviction, but man, I can be very compassionate. And I think that's what we're called to be. And trust the Holy Spirit in this. So let me pray for us. Let's just, in our, let's just go to prayer and let's just pray on this a little bit. And that's God to help us understand and to help us apply to our own specific situations. Lord, we just come before you here as we come, our time comes to a conclusion here together. And we thank you for your word, Lord. We thank you for these clear words of Paul who had in his own life had to wrestle down this concept of love and compassion he even made the connection, if I don't have love, man, I'm just, a, I'm just a clinging bell that changes nothing. Lord, you are a God who loved the world so much that you sent your one and only son to die for the very people who would never honor you. Lord, may we have just an ounce of that in our life, that we may be wise in understanding, not lose conviction, not give up ground, not hold the line, but... Lord, that you help us build a bridge. Help us to understand points of view. Help us, Lord, that when the opportunities come, we will be ready. And we know, Lord, when you create the opportunities, good things will happen. Lord, we, we tell you that we share with you, we are, are your servants. We wanna be that. We wanna do that, Lord, because you died on the cross for us and saved us. We wanna bring as many to heaven with us as possible. That's your will. Make it our will too, Lord. And Lord, I pray for anybody in our room today. This is not what they're wrestling with at all. These aren't the questions they have. Their questions are, do I even believe this stuff? Lord, if there's anybody in our room today that's struggling with doubt, they've got questions, not even sure that, uh, that you're real, Lord, I pray that even right now as we are bringing our service to a conclusion, that just in your own way, Lord, through the Spirit, you draw near Lord, you come near, just in a convincing way the Holy Spirit does and say, I'm with you. I, got, I understand what you're going through. I'll be there for you when you're ready. Lord, we have questions and doubts all the time. Help us, Lord, with our unbeliefs and our questions. Lord, may this always be a place, New Life Christian Church, be a place that it's okay to ask hard questions and it's okay to wrestle. But Lord, as we wrestle this down, Would you give us all opportunity, Lord, even maybe today, before we go home, an opportunity that you lay before us to proclaim the gospel clearly. Help us in our relationships, Lord, to always reflect the love of Christ in all we do. Thank you, Father, for your many blessings and how you continue to bless and prosper our church family. In Jesus' name, amen, amen. Would you stand to your feet? We're gonna sing one more song together, but I wanna let you know that after our service today, If you just wanna pray with one of our elders, there's gonna be several here at the front and they'd love to pray with you. If you've got somebody on your heart, you wanna say, I'm gonna start praying today and you'd like one of our elders to pray with you, they're gonna be right up here. Or maybe you've just got some questions, you wanna know more about what it means to follow Jesus, we would love to visit with you. So let's sing together and if that's on your heart to do today, you just stay up front and uh, we'd love to have a few moments with you. Let's sing together.